2 Corinthians chapter 4, I invite you to turn there as we work our way through this, this book, each and every verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, so it's based on what we previously learned, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Are you in the ministry? How do you answer that question? Many people who are not in ministry as a vocation might say, no, I'm not in the ministry, but that's not true. If you're a believer, you ought to be serving Jesus, the ministry people. So when Paul writes about the ministry, he is speaking, yes, to me, but he's speaking to all of you who are in Christ, that you are serving him, and he's teaching us something about the ministry that God has given to us, about the calling that he's put on your life, about the gifting that he has imparted to you to use for his glory. Do you have confidence in that calling? Do you have confidence in that ministry? You should, because it's not from you, it's from God. Don't be mistaken. Paul says, since we have this ministry, you also, if you're in Christ, you have a ministry, you have a calling and that should give us confidence because it's not from us. It's from the Lord. He says something at the end of this verse 1 that is very appropriate if you've spent time serving the Lord. And have you? Have you poured your life out into God's people to the glory of God? Praying and working to see people saved and to see people set apart from Him. Is that you? If it is you, then there's a temptation that has come to you. And what is that temptation? the temptation to lose heart, the temptation to get discouraged. Lord, I'm, I'm doing what you want me to do. I, I'm ministering, I'm serving, but now I'm, I'm starting to get discouraged. I'm getting disillusioned, downtrodden. So Paul says, we have this service, this ministry from God, this calling on our lives. Since it's from him, we don't lose heart. There's that discouragement that comes sometimes, and we are to allow God to remind us of what he has called us to. What's the task? What's the job? What's the mission? Do not grow weary. Paul said, I, I'm not growing weary. And if you know anything about Paul's life in the ministry, didn't he have exterior, physical, emotional reasons to be wearied? He certainly did. But he says, we're not losing heart. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. Don't back off of it. If you know it's what God has called you to do, continue in it. I'm reminded from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9. Very famous passage. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. There it is, right? There's that instruction to not grow weary in doing the right thing. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, the admonition to stay the course, to not get discouraged. Don't allow that downtrodden mentality to settle in. If you skip down to verse 16 of this very chapter, what does it say there? I hope you're with me, seeing the word on the page. Therefore, we do not lose heart. To lose heart means to lose desire. Have you lost your desire to serve the Lord? Is, is it waning? Don't lose heart. It's good. 
when you serve people, because you, you serve God by, by serving people, you serve him, but when you see them growing, first of all, when you see them receive Christ, what an inspiration that is, what an encouragement that is, right? And then you see a person begin to grow in God. God's changing them. God's using them. They're being set apart for his purpose. That's pretty inspiring. That makes you take heart. You say, look, Lord, you're using me to help that person grow in you. You use me as your instrument. That is very encouraging. But how about when the people around you, the people you're serving, are Christians like the Corinthians? They're bickering. They're distracted, and they're worldly. And you're, you're serving, you're desiring to see them grow, and they're just out to lunch. The lights are on, but nobody's home. And you're thinking to yourself, why am I pouring into these people? They seem to be going backwards instead of forwards. They're numb. They're not alive, Lord. Paul says, don't grow weary. Look who Paul is speaking to specifically. He's speaking to us as the body of Christ today, but he is speaking to this church that's got a ton of problems. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The Corinthians were the problem child. They were the problem church. When you look at in Scripture, the way they acted and the things that they did, Paul had an exterior reason based on their behavior to be discouraged. But his calling wasn't based on the behavior or the mentality of the Corinthians. It was based on his call to serve the Lord. Today, if you're a servant... If God's te teaching you about the ministry, and he's certainly teaching me about the ministry, don't lose heart. Because your calling, your ministry is not from people. It's from him. I remember the first time that I saw somebody going backwards in the faith. Somebody that I had desired to to disciple somebody that I had desired to serve and, and, and pour into. Now, I know previous to that, I had seen other people go backwards, shrink back in their faith. But this one was particularly, particularly stood out in my mind, this person, because I, I was vested. I, I, I was rooting for them. I was desiring to encourage them. And then to see them go backwards and to be drawn away from the Lord and to, for it to seem as though that which I told them or tried to share with them was all for naught, what's the emotion that happens right there? To lose heart, to say, look, I, I'm, I'm wasting my time. Have you been through that before? You see that, that person, and it's definitely more than one person for me at this point, falling for the deceitful handling of the word. You see that person start developing their doctrine according to their deceived lifestyle. You see that person start to believe the lies of the world. And it can be really, really discouraging. I think of what Paul writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he says that, that according to their own desires, they will heap up teachers. Do you realize that your desires, what you want to do, affects your beliefs. Because if you want to do something and it's errant, you're going to try to justify it with some sort of twisted doctrine. When you see that happen in a person's life, it's very discouraging. Oh, this is okay that I'm living this way, that I'm being like this. I've got my doubts about God, but God's probably okay with it too. I think of a song 
written by Jimmy Lee Slois years and years ago, that one line said this, my desires rearrange my views. When I want something that's crooked, all of a sudden my views on life change too to fit that which I desire. When you see that happen in somebody's life, it's potentially discouraging. But what does Paul say to you and to me? He says, don't lose heart. Stay the course. Referring back to what we learned and read in Galatians, for in due time you will reap the harvest. We're in this for the long haul. We're about the eternal work, right? Not just the immediate work. But we see what's in front of us when it comes to days and we start to think, oh man, is this what I should be doing? Yes, if you're serving the Lord from a pure heart, it is what you're supposed to be doing. When you see anyone regress, the potential for losing heart is definitely there. Paul definitely had more reasons than the disgruntled Corinthians then to be, to be discouraged. He was experiencing tremendous persecution. Most of us have never experienced that, but he had a lot of reasons, or I should say excuses, to be discouraged. But he says, do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Be reminded of your purpose, your calling, your mission. Don't lose sight of the call. Your calling is not according to people anyway, right? Though none go with me, still I will follow. This verse 1 literally means in that second phrase, we have received mercy, literally means I have been mercied by God. Is that true of you? I've been, he has given me mercy after mercy. He's mercied my life over and over again, supplied me with that first mercy that caused me to come to him and repent, have his kindness lead me to repentance, but he's just given us so much mercy, and that's the call so I'm not going to lose heart. I know that the mercies of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Amen? So if you've been mercied by the Lord, don't lose heart. Continue to serve others in that mercy. Verse 2, oh, that, that point was don't lose heart in service. Don't lose heart. If you're, if you're one of those people where you take notes and your hand cramps up after just like four or five words, you can just put, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in service. Don't lose heart in your calling. Next, we're going to see a warning. Number two, beware of false teaching. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul knew the scriptures before he was saved. He was educated in the scriptures. He went to the best pharisaical school. He advanced beyond his peers. Knowledge of the scriptures was not the problem for Paul. In fact, he thought it was his job to root out those who were imposters, before he came to Christ, he persecuted the church. He could quote it. He could expound upon it. But he did so with a craftiness, with a deceit. For he desired to take the scriptures and use them against God's very people. He persecuted the church. And now he's warning others about the crafty and deceitful use of the word of God, isn't he? He says, we've renounced that mishandling 
of the word of God. He says, now we use the word of God in the sight of God, according to the manifestation of truth. And it bears witness to your conscience. You have a God-given conscience. It speaks of that conscience in Romans chapter 1. Yes, I hope it, it testifies to you in your soul, but in your conscience and in your mind, you hear the handling of God's word. Is that not what God intends for it to mean? Don't overcomplicate it. Don't be pulled aside by the philosophies of people, a bunch of man's reasoning. Is it the plain speaking scriptures as it was put in the last chapter? He says, we renounce the mishandling of the scriptures, the craftiness, the deceitfulness. I hear so many who say, well, they quoted scripture. They must be okay. Well, it's good that they quoted scripture. It's good that they read scripture. But don't we learn here that the scriptures can be handled in a way that's deceitful, in a way that's crafty, in a way that's manipulative. Study it. Be a Berean. Make sure that it's been rightly divided. For Paul says, I, I renounce the mishandling of the scriptures, that craftiness, the doctrines of men. Let's not take the Bible any further than the Lord takes it when he gives us these truths. The scriptures are full of warnings about false teaching. That's why I titled this point, Beware of False Teaching. And false teaching starts many times seemingly mild and then gets more severe, or the severity of the teaching becomes more apparent later on. At first, oftentimes, that false teaching is just going to get you critical. It's just going to get you distracted. It's just going to get you off course just a little bit. And it's not seen as this way. Hey, guess what? I'm your friendly neighborhood false teacher. It's good to meet you. It doesn't work that way most of the time, does it? No, it's crafty. Do you see what the word of God says? It's deceitful. And we renounce that. And we say, give me a spiritual awareness. That doesn't happen unless you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, correct? That I would know and be able to see it coming. Do you know what happens with us today? We, can, we think this way. Oh, we've got it dialed in. We go to a Bible teaching church. So we don't have anybody in there who's deceitfully handling the word of God. They just wouldn't allow it. So I can take my defenses down and I don't have to filter what I hear anymore. People wouldn't come to this place and be a part of this ministry if they were crafty handlers of the word of God. That is such a lie. Beware. Have discernment from the Lord. It's usually not obvious at first renounce that false teaching. I don't want anything to do with it. It's, it's a distraction. It's a detour. It is somewhat hidden at the start, as the text states. So beware of false teaching. Don't think, oh, we're above that now. We have all of our original language tools, and we are so good at interpretation and application. We could never be pulled astray. Not true. Let the Lord continue to give us the light of his wisdom in regards to his word. Verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. I give you the third point, which is stand against the darkness of the devil. Isn't that one of the things that this verse 3 is teaching us? To stand against the darkness. 
That really is the agenda of Satan himself. The God of this age, who is that? With a little g, God of this age. He's not the God of creation. He's not the God of redemption. He's not the God of eternity. He's the prince of the power of the air. And I've got my sinful self to deal with. And on top of it, the Bible says that there's a God of this age who is influencing our minds and our hearts in the way of darkness. Maybe that's too weird for you to think of, but God tells us that it's true. That the little g God of this age, that the prince of the power of the air, is controlling the prevailing way of thought. Do you see it? I clearly see it in our society, even in the church. It seems as though people have lost their ability to reason. It, it appears that they've lost their bearings completely. But really, even though it's unreasonable and they have lost their bearings, it's because of that influence of the evil one. It's because of him coming in, and what does the word say here? That he veils the gospel. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He keeps those who are unbelieving in this place away from the God of love, the God of design, the God of hope, the God of grace. And as we see this perversion spreading, we sometimes try to have a reasonable approach to it. I was having this discussion just the other day with my family. How is it that things are getting so odd, so weird? And we were kicking around ideas, and some people said, maybe it's because of money. Maybe they just think it sells. Actually, some of this agenda that Satan is pushing, it doesn't sell. But it's still his agenda. So it's not all about money. It's not all about power, although they would like to have those things. It is simply about the God of this age pulling people into darkness, keeping them from seeing the light of the glory of Jesus' face. I hope that God would show you that that's the prevailing way of the world, that the God of this age wants to control the culture. It's not just because of lust. It's not just because of violence. It's an orchestrated agenda of the enemy. He wants as much darkness as he can get. He wants to keep souls behind that veil, separating them from Christ. And this spiritual and eternal enemy is having his way with many souls because people don't have spiritual sight. You might be thinking, what in the world's going on? How could it be this bad? Well, many are falling for the strategies of Satan. Hook, line, and sinker. It's directed darkness. Now, we're called to stand against that darkness. But Satan is a schemer. And if he can't get you to join, he'll get you to hate. If he can't get you to fall for those ideas, he'll get you, as a believer in the Lord, to hate those people, to despise those people. Do you ever have that temptation to just start thinking, you know what, I think that person's a reprobate. Why should I care about them? They obviously don't care about God and his truth. You see, if, 
if the enemy can't get us to follow his agenda, then he'll get us to hate the people, which makes our light nothing. I hope and I pray that when I do come into contact with people that I know have been distracted and deceived by the enemy, that they see the love of Jesus in me for them. I say, I preach, I sing that God can do anything. Do I treat people that way? Or do I treat people who I know are are really off base in their thinking and their lifestyle? I know that it's very simple. Do I treat them like, you know what? You're kind of beyond. And I'm supposed to, Satan would love to get me hating them. He'd love to get you hating them. He'd love to stop the light, and we're going to learn about this, of the gospel from going out. Stand against the darkness of the devil, but I ask you, whatever will we do? How will we stand against this darkness? Are we going to do that with our morals? Are we going to do that with our history? Are we going to do that with our family values? Family values don't set people free. Good politics don't set people free. Conservative politics don't set people free. Jesus sets people free. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Point number four, shine the light. Shine the light of the gospel. It is the light that the agenda of darkness, you have this orchestrated agenda of darkness put forth by the enemy, but we have the light of the gospel given to us by the Lord Jesus. So it's not first and foremost about legislation, although I would like godly legislation. It's not first and foremost about victories in the courts. It's about the light of the gospel. And gospel is not just a type of music. (laughs) Gospel means good news. I sang as a kid, good news, good news. Christ died for me. Good news, good news. If I believe, good news, good news. I'm saved eternally. That's wonderful, extra good news. The good news of the light of Jesus, that he gave his life for me, and that if I believe on him, I'm saved for eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Will you admit that you need his forgiveness? Will you believe upon him as Lord? Will you believe that he's risen from the dead? If you will believe in him as Lord, if you will believe that God raised him from the dead, he will save you. He will transform you. He'll put you on a path to heaven. He'll put you in relationship with him. Oh, the light of the gospel. For we do not preach ourselves, verse 5, are you with me? But Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake, 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus. Yes, the gospel message, but no one can receive that message unless they see who Jesus is. A person can know the principles of the gospel. That's not enough. You must know the person of Jesus Christ, the face of Jesus. That light shines so that we can see the face of Christ, so that we can understand his heart for us, so we can get a glimpse of who he really is. Christian, when you communicate the gospel, yes, let those truths of the word of God always be there. But I ask you this, are you communicating Christ? We should be. We can't communicate the gospel without communicating Jesus, the heart of Jesus. How he laid out this amazing plan and then he carried it out. Are you communicating Christ that he pursued you? That he's been calling to you? That he willingly took the nails and hung on the cross? Are we communicating Jesus? Because if we're not communicating his love, then how's anybody going to get it? How's anybody going to believe? It's communicating the light of Christ. Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus says, I am the door. So as we give the good news to those who are veiled in darkness, let's give them Jesus. Let's give them the light of the face of our Savior. Shamefully, many times before, I've hit the principles of the gospel. Sometimes so fast, it just makes the person's head spin. And I'm talking about Jesus. And of course, he's in there because he's the one who gave his life. But am I forgetting to communicate who he is so that that veil would be lifted? That's the gospel. The light of the gospel shines. The face of Jesus reveals. His face is shining. You'll never be the same once you see the face of Jesus. Maybe you have heard the, the truth of the gospel before, but you haven't seen the light of Jesus' face, the person of Jesus Christ, his love for you. Yes, his love for the world, but his love for you individually to give himself for you, for your sins. You have to see your sin on Jesus. Do you see it on him today? If you do, call him Lord. Turn, turn away from yourself and turn to him. He'll save you and you will be connected to his resurrection. Shine the light of the gospel, point number four. Now let's go to verse seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So point number four, shine the light. Point number five, be an earthen vessel for the treasure. Back in verse 5, it says we don't preach ourselves. You and I aren't presenting how good we are. We're nothing special. These verses say that we're dirt containers, prone to contamination, easily broken, nothing really great to look at, nothing really great in its function, jars of clay. We don't preach ourselves. We're not worth proclaiming. We preach Christ crucified. He 
is the treasure of immeasurable worth. There's an excellence in the power of God, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of Jesus. Think about this. God chose that we would be the containers for him, the treasure. To say that's surprising to me is an understatement. Why would God pick us earthen vessels, corrupt, nothing more than dirt, and say, I'm going to put my treasure in them. Usually the container speaks to what it's storing. You don't, you don't put something super valuable in a cruddy container, right? I, I know you guys. Most of you have guns in your safe, right? I like my gun. It's valuable. It's in the safe. The container's got to be just as good, if not better, right? Than what I, do you have any jewels? Do you have any money? I'm the kind of person, because I'm my father's son, I, I keep a lot of cash around. It's just, I, I don't know. If it's, and it's stored like in weird places, right? Sometimes I think I'm going to forget about it. I, just, I shouldn't probably tell you this, but I want to... <laughs> I, Sometimes I keep that, a bunch of cash, and it's like in places you wouldn't expect it to be, right? Right? Uh, some of you are admitting that you're like this, too. I'm just thinking, what if I need some money and I can't get to the bank? I, I want to have some, you know, nothing, right? So you're thinking, where can I put this? Where can I keep this? God, in all of his wisdom and in all of his ways, decided that he was going to store the treasure of himself in you, like that clay pot that's on the mantle, not in the safe, not in, you're not a treasure chest. You're not this beautiful, you know, you're an earthen vessel, the Bible says. Now you're, you're chosen of the Lord if you're in him and you're, you're, you're precious to him. But we're not preaching ourselves. We're just pots made of clay. We preach the treasure. God didn't use Moses God didn't use Moses when he was a prince. He used him when he was a fugitive. Glory to God, not glory to Moses. Glory to God that he took a stammering shepherd and used him to deliver the children of Israel. Earthen vessel. The Apostle Paul. God didn't use him when he was a Pharisee. God used him when he was broken and persecuted. Glory to God, not glory to Paul, that he used someone who was a persecutor of the church to become a planter of churches. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I'm definitely not worth proclaiming, but Jesus is. I'm definitely, I'm, it's, if you come here thinking, oh, we're going to learn about Eddie, don't waste your time. But learning of the Lord, of the treasure that's of immeasurable worth. And he chose to use you as his vessel. Wow. Are you just going to make excuses and say, well, I, I'm, I'm an earthen vessel, I'm useless? Or are you going to look at what the word says and say, he's storing his treasure in me that I might impart it to others? Listen to this description of Paul's situation along with his co-laborers in the faith. It's a verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, 
yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested or, or shown in our mortal flesh. That the life of Jesus would be shown in the fact that our bodies are being persecuted. Point number six. It's a short point, but I think it's a strong point. Being persecuted makes us partakers of Jesus' death. Being persecuted makes us partakers. When you believe in Jesus as Lord, you are connected eternally to his death and resurrection. When you're baptized in water, you are proclaiming that you are connected to his death and resurrection. When you are persecuted, you are experiencing what it be, means to be connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now let me clarify, Jesus paid it all. It is finished. He paid the price for your sins and my sins completely. Right? At the same time, does, doesn't this teach us right here that as we suffer persecution, that's connecting us to the death of Jesus, but then eventually the resurrection of Jesus. We rejoice when people confess faith because we know that the death and resurrection of Jesus is in them. We rejoice when they're baptized in water. Do we rejoice when we're persecuted? Because that makes us partakers of Jesus' death. So then death is working in us, verse 12, but life in you. See verse 15, go down a little bit, same principle. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So it's written here in the word of God that in verse 11, you see it there, that this persecution delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that we're willing to suffer, and it's for Jesus. It's for the proclamation of Christ. But it also says in verse 12 that death is working in us, that we are being persecuted to the death, but it is life to you, that it is for the hearer of the word that is preached from the persecuted person. Our final point is hear of Christ through the suffering saints. Think of the point that the scriptures are making right here. It's a point that we don't consider very often. Because of those who have gone before us, who have been willing to suffer persecution, we've heard the word of God. Because many before us have been willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, we now have the word. We now have the message passed to us. We've heard the gospel. And maybe this doesn't get taught very much because all glory goes to God, and rightfully so, but still, we are so supposed to see the blessing of having the word passed on to us and what it costs for us to hear about Jesus. It costs people their lives. 
on this Memorial Day weekend, we're very familiar with this principle and hopefully very thankful to those who have given their time, who have given their health, some have given their lives so that we can have freedom. We're familiar with that idea that it, it cost something. That it wasn't free. That people paid dearly. We should be thankful to the Lord that he made people willing to do that. Willing to lay down their lives. But there's something greater, isn't there? Than freedom in our country or having this republic in the United States of America. It is having the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that part of that freedom is to share it, but do you know who suffered so it could be passed down through the ages, through the centuries? The persecuted church suffered greatly. They were willing to continue to proclaim even though they were being put to death. So here we sit, saved, because God gave them the strength to be hard-pressed, to be perplexed, but not despairing, to be persecuted, but to know that they were not forsaken, to be struck down, to literally be beaten and bludgeoned so that the message could be passed on. Isn't that what the apostle is teaching the Corinthian church? Isn't that what God's teaching us here today? That death is working in the persecuted so that we can know life. That thankfulness to God that he has empowered people to do that ought to be there in us. Now, today there are some safe countries for Christianity, and we might think this way. Oh, yes, there's intense persecution in North Korea and in Iran and in, in Pakistan and in Nigeria, but think of this. We have the safer countries, and even if the people in those countries weren't to speak out, we'd still have the people in the safe countries who could speak the gospel, so the gospel would continue to, to go forth. The sort of, of American, Americanized reasoning. Well, there'll always be people who aren't persecuted to share the gospel. Therefore, the suffering of those who are persecuted unto death doesn't matter that much. But let me remind you, historically, in the first century church, there was nowhere you could go in the known world and be a living Christian without experiencing persecution. There were no safe zones. You go to Spain, you go to Italy, you go to Greece, you go to Asia, you go to Judea, and everywhere you went, you would experience persecution unto death in that first century, in that second century. The devil made a push to completely annihilate Christianity. But God strengthened his church to endure persecution and pass on the gospel to us earthen vessels, mere people just like us, strengthened to proclaim the word, to preserve the word, isn't the plan of God amazing? That he would use us as earthen vessels, and that he would use people to keep the flame alive. Broken, but still beacons of light. Literally outcasts turned into conquerors. Those who are despised have been lights. Hear of Christ through the suffering saints. I want you to listen to the words of this song. I'm not going to sing it, 
but I want you to listen to the words of it. It was written 30 years ago, and it's got this principle of hearing of Christ through the suffering saints. The flame passes on. It's, it's the last song on, on Highlands, recorded by Whiteheart. Going back into history, it says this. Fire on the arena floor. The swords are drawn. Hear the lions roar. The Colosseum laughs and shouts and screams for more. They tried to crush this mutiny in the crimson tide of history. But when people have seen the truth, it sets them free. The flame passes on. From the heart of the people comes love for the people, love that is burning strong. Oh, from one to another, this dream of forever, the flame passes on. Because of them, we know his name. So let's lift the cross and do the same. An unbroken line of believers building a human chain, and the flame passes on. From the heart of the people comes love for the people, love that is burning strong. Oh, from one to another, this dream of forever, the flame passes on. Oh, the light of the ages illumines the pages, the words of an ancient song. Oh, the faith is the fire that burns ever higher, and the flame passes on. Oh, Lord. We stop right now and we thank you for giving people strength to proclaim your word in great struggle. To preserve your word, to, to hide your word, to hide it in their hearts, to keep it on those scrolls. Lord, we, we thank you for doing something supernatural. And we give praise to you for that. We see, Lord, that the chain won't end here. But we are now your earthen vessels carrying your treasure. And Jesus, we don't want to pass on some kind of watered down, you know, culturally friendly so-called Christianity. We want the light from your face to just shine forth and that veil to be lifted, Lord. We see the need. And sometimes we even get discouraged because the need is so great. But we know that we have you. You're the, the light of the ages. I pray for your people in this place that as they go out this day, that as they go out this week, that they would beam forth, Lord. I pray that even in this place afterwards, as, as those who haven't believed in you, that they would see not us, but you, Jesus. I thank you for saving me when I was just way out there, Lord, in my own way of thinking. I thank you for redeeming me. And I pray that because I've been mercied, I would give your mercy to others. I pray for every person that's known your mercy that they wouldn't keep it to themselves, not grow weary in well-doing. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.